So, Steve, first of all, I mean, as a music producer, you've and mixer and everything, you've worked on some of my favorite records of all time. I mean, <laughs> that's you know, I think anyone that kind of goes into the business of entertainment, the creative business. I mean, most people want to go in because they want to work with great artists. And you've accomplished that. I mean, these are not just regular artists. I mean, these are decade-defining artists, whether it's from, you know, Guns N' Roses, Whitney Houston, David Bowie. Um, the list goes on. But here, here is the thing that interested me. You started out as a DJ, which I had no idea. I mean, like, is a requirement for a DJ? Like, do you have to start off doing drugs? You know, uh, I'm a control person, and I love weed. That was my drug. Weed was my drug, okay? Obviously, I did coke, but I'm too hyper for that shit. And um, somebody, when I was six years old, gave me acid once. Scared the living crap out of me, you know? Uh, uh, I had a, a, a Volkswagen... Uh, Beetle that was all stroked out. Uh, it was called Purple Haze. It was purple, and it had uh, a Porsche engine. In it, so it was all hyped up. Mickey Thompson L sixties on it. And the middle of the winter, somebody gave this to me, and I was numb. I literally walked out of my house in shorts and no shoes, and went to my friend's house and stayed with me for about eight hours to get off this shit. So I learned then this is not anything I want to do. And I remember um, working with the Grateful Dead, which is not my favorite band, uh, and Clive Davis made me work with them. And I get in the studio, and Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir come in, and I sat down with Jerry. There was a TV show called uh, Playboy After Dark. Hugh Kepner had a TV show every uh, weekend, and it was done at the, the, an apartment you know, the Playboy penthouse or whatever. And they would have guest artists there from James Brown to Deep Purple to whatever. And the Grateful Dead performed one night. And, you know, I found that they did is they put acid in the punch bowl. So everybody was tripping on the show. So I sat down with Jerry. And I said, Jerry, with all due respect, if you ever pulled that shit on me, I would clock you inside your fucking head. You know, uh, we got along great, by the way, Jerry. We smoked a joint. Great guy. But, you know, this is stuff that was going on. So when it came to drugs, I, I, I never really wanted to see drugs in the studio, okay? It's okay for a glass of wine or a beer if you want to smoke a joint. But I've worked with certain artists that required different things, and I was just not into it. I feel that um, it's a false sense of security for a lot of artists to do what they do. I, I personally think pot is fine to me anyway. It worked good with me because it made me more concentrated. I mean, if I have to listen to the same song for 26 hours straight, I need something. So good nutrition and weed always did it for me. So, so, so now you mentioned something, you mentioned weed. Obviously, the weed today is much different than the weed yesterday, right? They, they grow it. There's different hybrids of weed. Like, do you think an artist can, can reach that, their ultimate level of creativity without using some type of drug? Of course. It depends how you were brought up. I mean, if you look at the greatest artists of all time, we can look at Jimi Hendrix. I mean, we can look at Led Zeppelin. God knows what Jimmy Page did. Uh, 
Uh, and you look at uh, Jimmy Jim Morrison from the Doors. I think he was an alcoholic. I don't know if he did drugs. Even Prince would shock the shit out of me because I worked with Prince. And when I found out he was doing drugs, that he was the furthest guy that would ever do drugs. I found out he got weaned on drugs because he had problems physically from performing. And I think it started with painkillers, which I think would happen with Michael Jackson as well. So that's a big, you know, pharmaceuticals have killed a lot of people in that respect. Again, it, it, I always find it depends how you start writing music. I mean, how many people write music when they're high? I don't know. But there's certain people who don't and do very well. So it's really a product of your environment, really. Well, what's interesting, who was that big um, A&R in the 80s? He worked on all the, the, the 80s records. He was the Aerosmith video. John Kalogner? John Kalogner, that's right. Yeah. He got a lot of flack because he did an interview out there. And he said one of the reasons why artists, I guess, in simple terms, are not as good as in his time, is because they're all on mood stabilizers. He was saying that, like, for an artist to achieve greatness, that they have to experience these really big highs and these really low lows. But if you're on these mood stabilizers, which is ADHD, Ritalin, then it inhibits the artist's creativity. What well, do you I'll be honest with you, I don't know, or I'm not familiar with mood stabilizers. I've never done them. I've obviously I've heard of Ritalin and all this. Well, well they're, they're, they're like anti- mood stabilizers or antidepressants. Okay. Again, David Bowie is a prime example who is a guy I uh, idolized, and he's the reason I got in the music industry. Obviously, he had drug issues. To me, he's one of the most creative artists ever to be in, in music, in my opinion. And uh, he cleaned up later on in life. But, I mean, he went down to the darkest of times when he worked in Berlin. They would think he popped. But then didn't Heroes, which is one of my favorite songs of all time, came out. There's certain artists that need that little extra something. I would never promote it. You know, I would hope that people can achieve it without substance. Because the problem is you start the substance route, then you feel anytime you have to perform, you have to be on that substance. And that'll kill you at the end of the day. It'll kill you. You know, uh, what I, I remember working with an artist who, his manager says he requires cocaine to perform. And I said, no fucking way. So I did everything in my power to get him to perform a song without doing it. And he did. And then he realized, hey, I don't need this. And I thought that was a great achievement, you know, but everybody's different. I mean, you know, I, I think the best artists are the ones that um, had a lot of problems in their life, unfortunately. A lot of them on Skid Row, and they talk about their life experiences, and they're not usually, uh, you know, billion-dollar babies. Tortured artists make better art. I'm sorry, what? Tortured artists, I think, like artists that live like a, a tortured yeah. life end up making better art. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. I mean, you even look at um, Picasso. You can look at uh, Salvatore Dali. I mean, you can look at artists. You can look at even movie people. 
I mean, Orson Welles is a great director. We know he liked to drink. I mean, uh, I'm not sure about Spielberg or, or Lucas. They might be uh, okay in that respect. But art is, and Walt Disney, here's a great example. I found out when they did the movie Fantasia, most of the people who worked on the movie were on LSD. <laughs> True story. I mean, who would have thought, you know? But then you look at it and say, yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, it's it's a demon. But out of the demon, I guess, and again, I, I would never promote it. I would hope that people could do without substance. So, you know, I'm sure you're like, I'm waiting for him to bring this up because everyone brings this up. And it's the ultimate, I mean, you work with Metallica and years later, I read on this site called Blabbermouth Okay. And there was a huge issue of the bass guitars being really low in Injustice for All, which is one of the first album that really broke Metallica. And there was this <clears throat> blame game going around. First, you know, but anyway, Jason Newstead said it grieved him. It almost like he was about to have a nervous breakdown. So what I gather is the band wanted it low or Lars wanted it low. Then he said, no, Steve, you wanted it low. What happened? In a nutshell, in a nutshell, what happened? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to understand, I came up with dance music, so I always felt that groove is important. So obviously bass and drums would be a big part of, you know, what I would do. And when we got the call to do Metallica, I found out the reason why they hired us because of the work we did with Madonna. Who would figure, right? So uh, we do the, the project up in Bearsville, New York. We worked on an SSL at Bearsville Studios. And Lars originally came in with the whole EQ setup chart, how he wanted his drums to sound. So I had Michael Barbiero, my partner, says, Michael, why don't you work with Lars and get the drums where he wants them? And then once you do that, I'll take care of you know, the rest. So he does that. And I listened to the sounds. I said, are you kidding me? I think this sounds like ass. So anyway, I kind of re-EQ'd all the drums a little bit just to make them a little more palpable. Again, it's near the beholder. Then I brought the bass up, which I thought the bass was a great part because you know what's great about his bass? It was a great marriage of Hetfield's rhythm guitars. It was like they needed to work together, you know? It was perfectly played. So I got the whole rhythm section together, vocals and everything like that. And then I, I felt, okay, now it's time, you know, Hatfield was in there, thumbs up and everything like that. Then I brought Lars in. And first of all, Lars hears it for about five to ten minutes, five to ten seconds. He goes, all right, stop right there. So he goes, what happened to my drum sound? And I basically probably said something like, you were serious? <laughs> so... <laughs> I had to rearrange the, the drum sound to get it where he wanted again. So I guess, okay, see the bass? I go, yeah. Drop it down the mix. I said, why? It's great. Drop it down the mix. Okay, so I, I did it as a joke. Dropped it all the way down. I said, all right, he goes, drop it down another 5 or 6 dB from there, which you could hardly hear. You couldn't hear it. I said, seriously? And I, I think I turned around to Hetfield, and he just went like this. And then I, I remember having a conversation with Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch who were managing them. 
And I basically had a conversation. Listen, I love these guys. I think this band is fucking amazing. Okay. I don't agree with what they want me to do with this. And again, I understand it's their record. They should get whatever they want. We're hired to get them what they want. But I just can't see doing this. Uh, and, and we wound up giving them what they want. You know, again, it's not my record. It's their record. You have to respect their opinion. I hated it personally because, again, I'm a bass guy. Okay. I love bass. You know, bass can't, even when we record it, we record the fattest basses in the world. Uh, and, but here's here uh, the thing: it was a blame. It was a blame game. But here is the thing: I mean, the band. This is a true story. I don't give a fuck who says anything. Right. I was there and knew what happened. Right. But here's the thing: the band had had to have had the record for at least some time and listened to it over and over again. So they ultimately were like, "Hey, this sounds good." They, they liked it. Yeah, they liked it. You know, the whole thing is. I think at that time they were looking for a more garagier sound, a little more raw sound. And, and my goal was actually to take master of puppets and make that sound like a demo at the end of the day. That was my goal. You know, I love ride the lightning and master of puppets, great albums, you know, but anyway, so all the stories came out and the end, the end day says mixed by Steve Thompson, Mike Barbiero. So obviously we're going to get the shit because it's our fault. Well, but but here, but here is the thing about that whole episode, because we've all been in a situation where something doesn't go according to plan, and everyone starts blaming the fingers, or pointing the fingers. Right. But here is the thing, where I believe your story is the most believable, because. A couple of years later, the band released an album called Saint Anger. Ooh. <gasps> exactly. Oof. And you're like, wow. First of all, how as a band do you listen to this? Just you sit with this record for a month. Because right, most of the time the album is mixed, the album gets better. Saint Anger. Is that the one with Bob Rock and they did exactly, a video? Exactly, exactly. Right, oof, right. Well, then, that, that was uncomfortable to watch. Well, but but how do you sit? Like how how do you sit as as a as a four piece in the room along with a producer and be like, wow, this album sounds incredible. I don't understand how that happens, but here is the thing: that album, I think, ultimately destroyed Bob Rock's career. I mean. I, I haven't really, I mean, everything prior to that album in the rock world, and I know some pop artists, it was Bob Rock, Bob Rock, Bob Rock, Bob Rock. But after that album, he kind of disappeared. I mean, maybe rock was, but do you understand what I'm saying? Like, would you, well, you know, that album? I, first of all, I prided myself in most of my career to stay away from the video camera. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about the artists. Right. So when I saw Bob Rock in that video playing bass with this and that, I felt uncomfortable. Yeah. It should be about the band. You know, you know, obviously, you know, we're in a, when I'm in the studio, you know, I'll do arrangements. Uh, uh, if I have to rewrite lyrics with the band, parts, or whatever. You know, I was the world's worst guitar player, so don't ever expect me to put a guitar on a track. You know, but I, you know, I, I did a little of that. But, you know, to each his own. But I felt really uncomfortable looking at, at, at that, the making of Same Anger, and obviously, Hatfield was going through his, um, and I love James. I think James is a great guy, and it was, I was sad to see that he had 
some problems, you know? Uh, Lars has always been the stronghold of the band. Uh, I didn't really, you know, Kurt, first time I met him was uh, when Metallica flew me and when they got elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm hanging out with Jimmy Page and I introduced myself as Kurt, I am so sorry. I just want to give you the real story, what happened. And again, uh, I love bass and I thought your parts were outstanding and it just, it upset me, but I had no control. And I, I really take a lot of pride in what I do, but at the end of the day, you have to say, this is what the band wanted, this is what you have to give them. I mean, I can fight all I want, but at the end of the day, I got to go with them, not me. Right. Unless it was my record, and that's what happened. And Fleming Ramson, the guy who produced the record, had issues. I met him for the first time, and I loved his work ever. I had to explain to him, I said, you probably heard from 50 other million people, this is what really happened. And again, I, I have no, I, I love that band. I love the guys and everything like that. I mean, they, to me, just blew me away when they come out. And it, it was sad. I mean, my biggest regret, we were doing so many projects. What I would have loved to have done, give them the mix they wanted and then mix everything the way I heard, just to have a copy. I, I didn't, we were doing three projects at once. We couldn't do that. You know, understand when we were mixing that album, they were on the Monsters of Rock tour. And they would fly in a helicopter maybe once or twice a week, you know, to go over everything. So, and the only guys that came to the studio were Lars and James. The other guys were probably at the gigs and everything like that. But it was sad. I mean, you know, it is what it is. You know, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I look at a lot of critics and they go, they love it without, a lot of people like it without the bass. And, and, and there's obviously people who don't, you know, personally, I'd rather have the bass in there because again, it was a great glue to the drums and guitars. And it was that glue piece that worked great. Well, interesting is that's a, that's a, it's a really interesting point you bring up. Like some people like it without the bass. I yeah. mean, when I said, don't touch it. When I, when I was in high school, I mean, I remember buying that album and I actually liked it without the bass because as someone in high school, you're not thinking about, Oh, I don't hear the bass. You're just as as a as a you know a sixteen year old to the songs and what they are and what right, they right right that that's yeah. it so to to a sixteen year old uh, to a sixteen year old that's not listening to the nuances what I liked about it is it sounded different it was unique so if anything I actually never had a problem with it and I never thought about it until it was brought up if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. You know, uh, again, music is subjective. Sonics are subjective. Songs are subjective. It's really to the ear of the beholder what they feel about a song. And a lot of times, unless you're a musician, you're not going to pay attention to stuff like that. You're just going to see what the song, the whole song does to you. You're not going to dissect all the hi-hats here and this weird nerd, you know. So, so speaking about subjective, you said music is subjective, and, and that is true. But when it came to actually working with artists and in the music actual business, you know, if you were to ask the typical executive, um, yes, music is subjective, but they would go in and wanting to work with a really great artist, okay, right? I mean, you worked with great artists. But I think today is a little different. 
um, you know, we're two decades later. Um, I don't think it's about greatness today, artists. No, so no it's, it's, about, it's about visual. It's about, you know, obviously the biggest radio station in the world is YouTube. Uh, you have all the streaming sites. So basically, what turns you on to RSA is more visual than songs themselves. Or, you know, like hip hop today is still probably the number one genre of music in the world. And I was fortunate enough to work on a lot of it. But it, 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 it it's more character. I mean, there's a lot of great music out there that people don't know because it's about great music. It's not necessarily about you know, promoting a visual artist that's going to go wow. Because, you know, if you look at a lot of pop music, if, if you look at the beautiful girls out there, it's, you know, with let, at least they show. And um, it's a different genre. You know, it was funny. When I was growing up and making music, my first thing is, okay, what kind of drugs do kids like today? Okay, if there was a certain drug they like, I have to make music in that form. You know, in the 70s, people were doing a lot of psychedelics, weed. So you can make lyrics more interesting, arrangements more, um, you didn't have to hit the punchline as quick. Let's put it that way. Now it's if you don't hear a song in 20 seconds, you're done. They want that immediate fix. They want that as soon as you put the, uh, the song on, wow, it hits you immediately. Like within the first five or 10 seconds because right. you know we have platforms like TikTok that... As you yeah, said, they only do a couple of seconds. And take a couple of yeah. seconds. Right. Yeah. A couple of seconds. Another thing about, you know, some of the artists that, you, you know, you worked with, I grew up with. I mean, they were like bona fide stars. I mean, if we talk about influencers, they were the ultimate influencers of the day. Right. Uh, but today, like when you go on TikTok and like I'm looking at a video with a song, it's no longer... I'm looking at that artist. I'm actually looking at another person mimicking that video. So right. I'm actually not connecting the song to the actual artist. I'm connecting the song to someone who has nothing to do with the actual artist. I think artist. what's big on TikTok was that Brooks and Dunn song that was done by this rapper who put like a reggae groove to it. And so you saw all these hot girls doing the things like that. Then you go, bam, bam, da, 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 whatever that song is. And it's kind of interesting because I, I look at that and it seems like a lot of beautiful girls are just getting on there to do their glamour shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pretty much. I mean, listen, I mean, I yeah. find... Nothing TikTok, wrong with that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I find like TikTok, it's like, it's it, it's a it's an entertainment. Um, and as you well, said... The problem I have with TikTok is it's run by the Chinese and there's some nonsense going around, so I won't be a part of it. Right. Um, it's a, a propaganda thing where they get a lot of information because, you know, whether we like it or not, we're, we are in a, a uh, an economic and uh, cultural war with certain countries. It's not usually a physical war anymore. And, uh, you know, a lot of these countries like China, they just want to get as much information as they can on everybody. Well, India banned. TikTok. Good for them. They banned it. As you said, they could be banned. I mean, I wish there was a platform that was above beyond be fun that wasn't cited by political bullshit. You know? I mean, you know, I look at TikTok, I go, wow. 
this is run by communist China. Could that be any good? And obviously the people who are on TikTok, kids love TikTok. Can't blame them. They don't, they don't know that what the ramifications of something like that is. You know, you're speaking about China. I mean, and even like, well, I mean, the Asian market, I mean, South Korea. I mean, have you heard of that boy band, BTS? I mean, huge. 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 I mean, they're they're huger than Backstreet Boys or NSYNC ever were. And and here's the thing, Steve. You're absolutely right. And think about that. That band is actually, more or less, formed and manufactured by the government. Of course. The government. Of course. It's like like what Perlman did with the Backstreet Boys and everything like that, only on a government level. On a government level. I mean, imagine if the United States government we're, we're actually funding artists, putting in like a billion dollars, exporting these artists out to other countries. That's exactly what South Korea is doing. I mean, the government spends so much money to export these K-pop artists out. I'm like, that's crazy. The government's involved. Well, I have a big problem with China and Russia. I've yet to see one penny of royalties from either country. Now, I've, my records have sold over 350 million worldwide. And probably you can add another about three or three hundred million more on stuff I never got royalties on, and it really pisses me off because of piracy, and they just won't give money to artists. I mean, how how do you get into that country and hold them accountable? You can't. Nobody's going to do that. Well, that you, sucks. It's amazing you said about China. Yeah, right. I mean, China was always known to be you know well, they steal intellectual property all the time. Right. So. What's interesting is that these labels are actually opening up in China. Like Universal Music Group is opening up offices in China. Well, hopefully I can get royalties then because I have a lot of products on Universal. Are they going to backdate it? <clears throat> See, the problem is that China has a lot of money. And you can tell by the NBA, China finances a lot of the NBA, so they're going to shut their mouths and let it happen, okay? So China throws all this money around the world. They throw money into undeveloped nations to help them out, and then they'll take them over. And people have to understand, again, I think the Chinese people are amazing people. I really do. I'm not, I don't fault them at all. I mean, you know, they work hard, this and that. I just have a problem with the Chinese government and what they're doing. And the same with Russia. I mean, I love Russian people. You know, I mean, basically, Putin uh, was the... A black market mafia guy that was head of uh, uh, um, uh, what's what's their security place? Uh, hey, um, <laughs> yeah, uh. what you know, and and um, that's the problem. You know, um, it's unfortunate that you know your music goes around the world. You like to be compensated, and, and all your money, uh, it's it's just. The intellectual property thing bothers me. I'll just leave it there. Yeah, speaking about compensated, I mean, right? Obviously, these streaming services, you know, like Spotify, Apple Music, are being criticized, right, for for the very low um, royalty payout. But here's the thing: but this is nothing new to artists. I know it's worse, but even like back in the day, you worked on Whitney Houston's track, and uh, I think it's uh, her big '80s track. Which one is that? I want to dance with somebody. And you mentioned that you never really received a paycheck from that. 
Oh, I get paychecks, but I mean, the paychecks are a joke because it won Grammy's Song of the Year. Still says, for some reason, Arista, uh, my royal, you know, when you work with Aretha Franklin, Expose, and all these artists, the, the royalty checks are disgusting. And so obviously we need to do an audit, but, you know, doing audits takes a lot of money to do. So, so you need to hire, like, a good, like, legal team? Is that pretty much what you need to do? Yeah. But, you know, be as it may, you know, dealing with the streaming sites, I will never subscribe to any of them. Now, I understand artists have to because that's the only way they can get their stuff out today. Because most of the artists today don't have a record company. You know, they, they, they need to have a social media presence. And they succumb to getting on Spotify and all these sites because they have no choice. And the record companies make a lot of money from Spotify and all, but they get the money and they don't really trickle it down to the artists. That's a problem. Yeah, I think like what is it that the payout? It's like eighty percent, and then there's thirty percent. But within that thirty percent, the artist gets like I don't know. It's 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 it, you know it's ridiculous. But I mean, obviously, if uh, the artist um, you know becomes influential enough, you know, it's like hey, you can make money another avenue, um, another avenues. But definitely, I mean, I think there needs to be a there needs to be a change. Um, it needs to be more, just something needs to change in that. Well, I have a problem with uh, uh, the geeks that run these things who have no talent, whatever, and they just basically live off the backs of creative people. And I have a problem with that. It's like they exploit talent. Instead of like advocating for the creators, it's like they're exploiting. Well, it's a talent. money grab. It's, it's all about uh, theft and it's all about greed. So, you know, Steve, what's really interesting is that labels today will, uh, and someone told me this, will literally um, sign an artist today with no history for six or seven million dollars. So they see the song going viral on TikTok and they'll sign it for like six or seven million dollars just because one song is going viral on TikTok. And what they're saying is that it used to be the song was tied to the artist. And when you had the CD, it was the CD was tied to the artist. That's how they were making the money. But right now, the labels just want to add as many songs to their war chest. It's not about the artist. No, I mean, not, the, the, the reason being, you, you understand yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying, but you have to understand record companies today. They're not in the business of really developing artists anymore, A&R. You know, they, they'd rather see a social media presence. I mean, basically, if you have 50 million views on on YouTube and you're taking a shit on, on a toilet and you're getting those 50 million views, they'll find a way to sign you because, you know, that's their promotion. Getting right. that. But, but know, also, too, the labels are getting leveraged, though. Instead of like the label, it's like, oh, great, we have these amazing breakthrough artists. Instead, the labels are leveraging by, by basically signing all these artists with these singles um, so they can now have more leverage with the streaming services and making deals. So it's th that's how they look at it. It's no longer like, oh, is the artist succeeding or failing? It's, it's more or less... Let's sign as many artists as possible. Let's add them to our war chest 
So when a new digital company arises from the ashes, okay, we can make good deals with them. Well, you have to understand, Atlantic Records had a philosophy probably in the 80s, 90s. We'll sign a lot of shit, and whatever sticks will work. Whatever doesn't, we move on. To give you uh, an interesting concept, and again, I'm all into new school, okay? I don't look back, but think of being like Guns N' Roses. Tom Zutat and Teresa Ensenot signed them to Geffen. Mm. And they stayed with the band. The band at the time were living, uh, you know, in people's apartments or, you know, the, the titty bar girls would take them in, things like that. And they sat and really worked the band, worked the demos, did this and that. So it got to a point where they were ready to go in the studio and they really worked it hard. They don't have that anymore. And again, when Guns N' Roses Appetite came out, it took about a year and a half to break this band. Can you imagine that? Wow. Uh, the first single we had was Welcome to the Jungle, which when I first heard it, I was blown away. I said, this is where rock needs to be in this time and place. And uh, the interesting fact is MTV wouldn't play it. They would not play it. And I was shocked. It was like um, MTV at a time didn't play black and R&B music until Michael Jackson came around. And David Bowie had it. I, I, I love David Bowie at that time. Uh, they did an interview with one of the VJs on there. And David said, how come you're not playing dark music? And they didn't have an answer. And the same with Guns N' Roses. I guess they thought that Guns N' Roses was too dangerous of a band. So Geffen was persistent with Guns N' Roses. They, we finally got a slot about two or three in the morning to play Welcome to the Jungle. After that happened, the phones lit up and they were forced to play them. And obviously, Sweet Child of Mine took them over the top. And Geffen spent an year and a half breaking this album. Nobody would do that. You know, companies say wouldn't spend 20 minutes breaking something anymore. But they knew what they had and they, they went to do it. And I love that. And there's certain artists that, you know, you need a little prodding. You need some uh, A&R. You need to nurture them. I mean, one of my favorite bands today is the Struts. I still feel they haven't made the great record, which I want to work with. I love this band. If I work with them, they would be the biggest band in the world. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, I think they're fucking amazing. You know, I just think they need to be putting a certain thing. You know, I mean, you know, they did an album where they started bringing in pop bars. Why? I mean, obviously, the kid sounds like Freddie Mercury. Great, great, great singer. I love the band. I, I would just rock them out. I don't know. You know, my th so you mentioned about how the label and Geffen spent all this money just to like, you know, break Guns N' Roses. What do they do with all that money today? Like, so instead of like using all that money to break artists over this long run, what, what, what do they do with it today? Well, I still get great royalty checks, but you know, they probably invested in other things. I don't know. How viable, you know, obviously David Geffen's not part of Geffen Records anymore, I don't think. Uh, you know, a lot of times they probably invest in other things. And someone like David Geffen, did he have like an ear for music or was he just a really good business guy? Oh, I love David. You know, it was funny. We had a, a party for Guns N' Roses and I went to go visit David at Geffen and we sat down for a while. You know what I loved about David? You know, he told me, he says, you know, Steve, Guns N' Roses is not my type of band. You know, he's more into like Laura Nero, Cher, uh, Carly Simon. That was his thing. He said, but, you know, 
I hired my people to get bands like Guns N' Roses and everything like that. And I really appreciate the people who work with me, and I give them the freedom to do what they need to do. And I love that. Because I feel if you're in a creative market, let the people be creative. Don't tell them what to do. I remember, you know, walking around the office, he would point to the saying, our guys, you see that guy there? Because, yeah, he hasn't done anything in two years, but I feel he's going to do something real important soon. Meanwhile, six months later, that person signed Nirvana. So we had the wear it all. No, hey, this is not my thing, but, you know, I, I hire people to be able to judge the market. I love that. You know, um, obviously, and in any business performance only, you know, it's how well you do. It's not what you did your last project. It's what you're doing now. You know, also, too, all those artists that you worked with, I mean, they all, none of them really own their own masters. Okay, right? I mean, the label put all this money into them. So what do you think of today, like with the whole Taylor Swift um, balking up that? I love the fact that she re-redid Red and said, okay, you're going to take my catalog? Great, I'll re-record them. <laughs> I love it. But who should have owned her catalog then? I mean, who, who does she deserve? Well, her manager, her manager at the, was a Scooter Braun? Was it Scooter? Well, that's Justin Bieber's manager. Oh, who's the one who managed Taylor? Um, I'm not sure, but it's not Scooter Braun. Now, uh, well, she had a manager with the Big Ten or a Big Sun or other, whatever. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm sure Taylor's deal was, you know, she could get publishing on whatever she wrote and royalties. But again, when you're dealing with artists, you know, the basic deal is the company owns the masters. Okay. Right. And you get a percentage of royalties from that. Now, I, now artists are getting to a point where they're getting back their catalog, which is great. Taylor was smart. You know, I, I love Taylor, by the way. I love what she does. I love her songs. I love her music. I mean, uh, that's another artist I would actually like to work with. But um, I love her, you know? And she's smart. She's not stupid. Okay? She's a good business person like Madonna was. But um, as far as that, you know, what, what a record company's doing, obviously, I'm sure they're dabbling in, in investments in other areas other than music. You know, get more bang for their buck, and you know, they could use uh, music as you know, like a front. I don't know. <laughs> right? No, that does make sense. And um, you know, you mentioned Taylor being a good business person, like Madonna, and you also work with Madonna. Yeah. And she came out of Brooklyn, right? Wasn't she from New York or Brooklyn? Yeah, yeah, she came from the streets. <laughs> and. Um, any any kind of interesting, memorable flashback working with um, Madonna? Yeah, but I can't mention that right now. Um, <laughs> I'm actually in the middle of writing my book. It's called Appetite for Production. And uh, it's going to be a book and a movie because uh, I have a unique background where I grew up in New York. I was a DJ in the top New York clubs in the 70s. And anybody knows about New York in the 70s and clubs, it was like, Caligula on steroids um, to where you familiar with the TV show Entourage? I am. Okay, that was me in the 80s in LA. You know, I had my Entourage and went to the playroom and we did all that. So it actually makes for a great movie. Um, I normally don't want to do something like that, but when you see this movie, you go, holy shit, what this guy went through. I mean, it was just like I was on cloud nine. I mean, you know, jet setting around limoing around going to best restaurants 
working with the biggest artists in the world. I mean, working with Duran Duran back in the heyday on a view to a kill in Paris. So you were, you worked in, you worked in the golden age of, of music. I mean, this right. was like the, the best decade. Um, well, it's, subje it's subjective, but you know, the cool part about it is all this music still selling today to kids. It is. It, it, it is subjective, right? Because you know what? Someone who's born today, which could actually be the worst time, has nothing to compare that worst time to. So their worst time could be actually like a good time, right? But here is the thing. Um, like, you worked with artists that literally did anything they want, said anything they want, um, you know, half those artists today, I would actually say all those artists today, if they were to operate in, in the same system, they would be canceled immediately. Everybody. Yes. And you know what? You know what the shame is? The artists that I grew up with, I mean, listen, I mean, whether it's Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, whatever, they're apologizing. They're apologizing. Like, it's ridiculous. It's rid I know where you're going with this. It's absolutely ridiculous. See, I have a problem with the beginning. I grew up liberal. Okay, still am liberal, but I'm also common sense. Okay, you know, I grew up as a kid in the '60s. Uh, you know, working on civil rights. I hung out with the Black Panthers. Okay, I was always big on civil rights. Uh, I was always into LGBT. I was always into gay rights because most of my best friends are gay. I worked in gay clubs, so I'm all into that. But but today's society is just batshit fucking crazy. That's the only way I could say it. Okay, to say that we have a race problem is ridiculous, okay? I know it was major race problems in the 50s and 60s and before that. Obviously, there's always going to be racists out there. But to say that we've gone backwards is ridiculous. And, and, and I, I the fault, the problem with society is with kids getting taught in school. You know, uh, you know, white kids are getting taught you're a piece of shit, you're a racist. We're not even old enough to know what a racist is, okay? You know, I, I would feel that each generation even is more acceptable to everybody. But the problem is that there's forces in society that want to separate people, and that's a shame. I mean, obviously, I, I work with from Wu-Tang Public Enemy to Johnny Mathis to Metallica Guns. There's never been a racist bone in my body. You know why? Because I grew up in New York in a melting pot. I, I didn't even uh, judge a person on skin color because, thank God, my parents says, we don't care who you bring over the house as long as they're good people. We don't care. And that's how I was brought up. So I never looked at somebody, okay, that person's black or that person's Asian. I mean, we didn't look at that. We judge people on people, content. <laughs> and then I, when I see everything that's happening, to, I mean, look at comedians. I mean, Dean Martin had a roast in the 70s. He's a good example. And I've done Rickles to Richard Pryor. And then you go down the line. If they, people looked at that today, you go, oh, my God, that's so racist. But people were just having fun. I mean, if you look at sitcoms in the 70s, like uh, All in the Family. I mean, Archie Bunker was, you know, a racist. I mean, you look at the Jeffersons, Fred, Sa Fred Sanford. I mean, look at all these shows. But what they did was they culturally said, hey, you know what? We're all the same. Let's make a little, let's have a little fun here. You know, comedian Chris Rock said comedy is no longer even funny. Yeah, well, it can't be that. And Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle got burned and, and he got burned from the LGBT community 
And meanwhile, his opening app was an LGBT. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, people need to lighten up, enjoy people, forget about what race they are, forget about what sexual preference they are, religion. Just enjoy people. Okay, treat them how you want to be treated. That's all. But it's the problem is that the the teaching society is killing people. Really the thing is. Is not, but but you know the thing is, I think artists too many artists are generally afraid to speak their mind. So of course, for instance, it's Hollywood. I guarantee there's a lot of conservatives in Hollywood, but they're not going to say they are, or they'll be blacklisted. <laughs> right. I, well, I mean, here's the thing: it's like how can artists generally be these creative beings and be authentic? when they're afraid of being canceled. Oh, well, if I say this, I might offend this group. If I say that, I'll offend this group. Like, how how does society, um, how do they get true, authentic art when people are constantly afraid? That's a good question. I wish I had an answer. I think it all starts in the schooling. Is te teach people, obviously, we want to teach the history uh, of the world in school. We want to show the problems that we had, you know, the the years of Thomas Jefferson's, the year of Mississippi, you know, all these states grew up with this and that. We want that taught. But to tell kids that you're a piece of shit because you're white and you're a supremacist, that's where I draw the line. With comedians, you know, comedians were funny when they would be able to say what they want. It's not like, I mean, Don Rickles was funny as shit. Richard Pryor was funny as shit. Red Fox is funny as shit. George Carlton. I mean, uh, Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. Let them do what they do. If that offends you, don't go to their shows. But what they're doing is they're, they're I think the best way to describe it is sometimes comedians will talk about how they grew up and with this, that, and everything like that and bring it to light without condemning people. You know what I mean? I don't know if you know what I mean. No, I, I, I know what you mean. It's like with Public Enemy, when I work with them. What I loved about Public Enemy, they brought what was going on in the streets that mod people didn't know about. And I love that they educated people, and they had a message. And a Public Enemy is still one of my favorite hip-hop bands of all time, and Wu-Tang. And I love that about hip-hop, because it, it brought their culture to the forefront so people can learn what, what was going on. But you know what, Steve? The thing is, with Wu-Tang, like, they truly had the power, um, the power in their audience. Today, you have big tech that holds power over everyone, including the entertainers. Right. I mean, it seems like that if one artist says the wrong thing, whether or does the wrong thing, whether it's Marilyn Manson, whether it's Morgan Wallen. By the way, I'm not supporting any behavior. I'm not actually getting into the morality of it. What I'm saying that if any artist does makes one bad move, everybody pulls together, big tech, maybe even Spotify, the label, management, and they cancel them. And it like becomes was a great example. Right. It becomes a mob because if you're managing an artist, you're going to drop him because the guy over there saying, Hey, why are you dropping that artist? So before everyone leaves the party, because no one wants to be the outcast, 
and the artist is left by himself. And no one's immune to this. Nobody's immune. I agree. But see, I don't feel guilty because how I was brought up. I don't have those qualities people think they are. And I'm, I'm not afraid to talk about it either. Because everybody knows me, knows that I'm a good person. I love everybody until they prove me wrong. Uh, everybody is well. But what happened? So how did, how did we get here? I how, told you. How, how, I mean, I, 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 it's politics. How did we get here? It's politics and schooling. That's how we got there. You know, my, my, my wife is from India. Okay. She's only been in America for 10 years. Uh-huh. And she wanted to come. When she got her citizenship, which was about two years ago, she was actually in the room. And she ha- everyone in that room who was getting their citizenship had to tell a story of why they were coming to America. And it gave us something. And she said, because America is the greatest nation on earth. And a couple days ago, she goes, Dean, how did we get here? How did America, what happened to the greatest nation on earth? It's like I said, the schooling system has to change. And the other thing you have to understand today, parents, Today are not like the parents of yesterday, where they devote a lot of time to bringing up their children, whether it be they're too busy working, uh, there's no discipline anymore. Uh, you know, if my kid has a problem, we'll give him some money, let him go play a video game or whatever, instead of sitting down with their kids. Because, you know, back in the day, parents had a little time to bring their kids up. Usually, a lot of times, the mom would be stay-home mom, and the dad would come home after work. I mean, it's all about how you brought up family-wise, and how many families stay together. It's another problem. How many, how many kids can say, I have a mom and a dad? It's probably a lot less. And then I'm going to keep saying the schools, what they're teaching kids. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting, because I'm a school. I want to teach kids to learn about everything, to learn how to be a good person, and to learn to be prepared for the world. That's it. I don't want them to learn about politics. I don't want them to learn about hate. I want to learn to love people. Okay? But you have politics that divided this country, and that's sad. Do you? I don't really think, though, that's getting really better, though. Like, I don't think one day we're going to wake up and, and just... Well, yeah, the hell's good. I've always been an optimist. I mean, you know, you see what's going on, what happened with the elections, where the, the parents are standing up and says, hey, I don't want my kids learning that, and they're standing up. I mean, that's a good thing. You know, when, when you know, parents should have somewhat control of what their kids are learning. You know, I mean, personally, if I had kids today, I would pull them out of schools and I would teach them myself. I wouldn't subject them to that hate. I'm sorry. You know, there used to be college campuses that were very liberal and could go there, but when they start teaching kindergartners up, we got a problem. Well, well you know, Steve, there's a theory out there. I think the theory out there is that America um, has a history of exploiting people. Okay. Now I, I would say every country, every nation on earth has a history of exploiting people. 
Um, but there's a group of people that say America exploited people and these people are still being oppressed. See, that's, I have no problem of teaching actual history of what happened. But to say today you're oppressed, that's what I have an issue with because my wife came to India, from India to America, excuse me, because she knew she wouldn't be oppressed. Right. So how does my wife have it all wrong where she's like, I love America. I'm not oppressed like I am in India. You know, in India, you have to speak a certain language. You have to be a certain color. You have to be a certain part of a caste system. All right. Um, to get a job, to make a living. If you don't meet those requirements in India, you can't get. But when she come to America, she could be anything she wants. Well, here's the deal with America. But, but, but here's the thing, Steve. But people are saying the problem that I have is teachers are telling students that you can't where they can. Oh, brainwashing. Here's the deal. America is the only country in the world that is all cultures, all religions, they're represented by every country in the world. Name me how many countries do that. Usually in Italy, you have Italians, Japan, Japanese. I mean, I can go down the line, okay? And there's obviously mixed and others. But America is, is a product of the whole world in one. And that's where freedom came from. <clears throat> like when your wife came to India, you know, they had the perception, oh, we can be who we want to be, okay? There's a lot of countries in the world that oppress their citizens. I mean, and you take a look at North Korea. Here's a prime example. They feel the only way they can control their people is to limit the knowledge they get to their people. And um, China has a situation where they have a terrible regime. They work their citizens to death on no money. And, and you know, these countries feel like they need to control their people. Now, what I find disturbing in our country is that we have a lot of liberal mayors and governors who are going against the Constitution. You have DAs that are letting criminals out, and law and order seems to be a thing of the past. And I don't care what country you're in, you need law and order, okay? That's the only way you, you, you can live in a better society. You can't get rid of law and order. And people are going to go batshit crazy, which you're seeing now. I mean, look at that person that drove through that parade the other day. Ran that, and that guy was um, had, was on a $1,000 bail bond. Really? And you look at his criminal record. And you look and see where everything's going on. Look at San Francisco, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, is now actually a garbage dump. And that makes me sad. And you look at all these policies. Look at Chicago. The murders going on. What are they doing? These people that are running these states, their job is to protect people, and that's their number one job, protect people, and they're not doing it. I mean, but I don't so, want to get involved political. The crime rate, you know what, the crime rate in America actually this year um, has, I think, outpaced almost every year. But someone just said to me that 14 people stole about $120,000 worth of merchandise from Chicago. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like, as you said, um, there are actually businesses in San Francisco, like in Target. They had to close, yeah, I know. They had to close up. And the problem is that the DA is a piece of shit and says, well, we're not going to prosecute anybody with uh, under $1,000 theft. Are you kidding me? I mean, people would get arrested for stealing a five-cent piece of bubble gum. <laughs> now, we're going to let this be? I mean, what kind of society is that? So, so you know, it's society. You know, music used to be a unifier, right? Like right. in the 1940s, the Beatles unified everybody. Well, that was 60s, not 40s. Six, sorry, 60s. Um, so do you think music and, and do you think could be a unifier again? Do you think, I, I, I know sometimes history repeats itself, sometimes it doesn't repeat itself. Could music be a unifier? Be a, honest question on that could music be a unifier again i would hope so i wrote a, a song called revolution about two years ago with this band in prague you can get it on my website steve thompson productions.com that was all about you know uh this young band from prague mm -hmm. and I, I made it rock and a little danceable and everything like that you got to check the song out mm -hmm. <laughs> it really holds true what's going on today yeah basically we need a revolution to get this world straight again again uh, I love freedom, okay? But, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in, uh, um, what's, the, what's the word I want to use? As far as freedom goes, we don't take advantage, you know? I, I, you know, America's built on freedoms, okay? But we're also built on law and order. They got to work together. I think that it was your personality. I think it was your ability to talk with people and the fact that you spoke your mind, I think that's what led you to work with some of these great artists. Because let's face it, I mean, you have worked with the world's best artists at some capacity. And, you know, and again, I, I, I do think you just didn't stumble there. Um, I, I do think so. I mean... Whatever your views are, it's worth it.